Well, there are times that uh, I can be a real news junkie. You like that at all? I mean, even in my day off, sometimes I find myself looking at my cell phone trying to figure out the latest news. I don't know why I'm a news junkie. Uh, anyone can relate to me there. Uh, but most of the time, the news I read or hear actually sort of bums me out. It gets me depressed. I don't know why I do this to myself. You know, I hear the latest loss of some tragedy, another shooting in Kansas City, another scandal, another terrorist attack around the world. Last weekend, I was getting on a plane, and uh, I'm not usually afraid to fly. I do quite a bit of it, and uh, as I was getting in line there on the CNN monitor, at the very same time was the plane crash in San Francisco. Now, I don't know what you feel like when you're boarding a plane, but the last thing I want to do is see a newsflash of a burning plane on a runway. We live in a time, it seems like, in a nanosecond world where we're constantly bombarded by the misery of our world and the brokenness of our world. And it comes to us on our smartphones and our computer screens. And it's easy for us to sort of feel the weight of it all come crashing down. And I want to suggest to us this morning that what we need most of all, perhaps, is a hopeful dose of renewed hope. Recently, our family spent a wonderful week in Colorado. I mean, if you want to get away from it all, you go to Colorado and uh, you try to clear your head. We unplugged our lives from being very plugged in. For a whole week, we hung out in the mountains and uh, we breathed in some fresh air. One early morning, uh, my son-in-law Marshall and my daughter Sarah and I took a strenuous hike to the Twin Sisters Peak. And we climbed 3,000 feet of elevation, and it was very different from the air we breathed at the bottom of the valley to the very top of the mountain. And it was a steep climb. I think I have a picture here. Here's Sarah and I on top of the summit. Is that cool? And uh, one of the things when you're on top of the mountain at 12 plus thousand feet, you know, you have a very different view of the world. It's not my normal Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday view of the world, and When I stood up and looked across the mountains, I found myself in the next slide with another vantage point of seeing the world. And I think in the midst of our brokenness and sin and struggles in the world, sometimes we need to take a climb. What we need most is to get some fresh air of a new elevation. But how do we find hope in the midst of a hopeless world? How do we find hope when life is really hard in our lives? And I want to suggest to you that we need to take a climb to a new elevation, but I bet it surprises you where I suggest we find it. (laughs) One of the highest peaks in the Old Testament, the highest peaks of hope, is the book of Lamentations. See, all of us find ourselves at times in the valley of life, don't we? When you're really feeling low, maybe you're there this morning, I don't know. Maybe the weight of the world is on your shoulders. Life is not working out like you had hoped. You encountered shattered dreams. Relationships are imploding with your girlfriend or boyfriend. Your marriage is unraveling. When life overwhelms you, when your job goes south, when your business fails, when life doesn't make sense, what do you do? Where do you find hope? What I want to suggest to you is I believe we need all of us to get some fresh air, to climb to a new higher elevation, and I want us to see one of the highest peaks of all of the Old Testament of hope. 
heard it read this morning, I'd like you to turn there to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations is, as you can pick up listening to it, and thank you so uh, profoundly for reading it so well, because it's often seen and heard as an Eeyore book, isn't it? When's the last time you hung out at Lamentations to give you a burst of hope? In fact, it's named Lamentations, for goodness sakes. Lament is not about laughter. It's about sadness and grief. And you felt it as Peggy read it. And Lamentations is a challenging book because its poetic terrain is steep and difficult to climb. And sometimes it stops us in our tracks, even after the first three or four verses of Lamentations chapter 1. But I want to suggest to you this morning that we explore it a bit together. And I'd like to raise two questions that I think are important in this wonderful book that is often ignored, often seen as an Eeyore book rather than a Tigger. First of all, what is Lamentations? And secondly, how does Lamentation give us hope? Now first, what is Lamentations about? This is important for us to grasp. It has a historical context. Lamentations was written during the time of the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem in 586 or 87, depending on your chronology. What I want us to do is to move across the sands of time and go back into its cultural context because it's hard for us to fathom the depths of feeling and anguish of the lamenter in this text as he observes firsthand God's covenant people facing the brutal, torturous, destructive machine of war from Babylon. Now, if we go back to this 6th century BC, we realize that the Babylonian machines of war encircled Babylon. It was much like a blockade today in modern warfare. The machines of war circled Jerusalem, and they sealed Jerusalem off. Nothing could go in, and nothing could come out. It was a psychological warfare, for one thing. And like a cat waiting for a mouse to come out of its hole... The Babylonian armies that were massive waited and waited and waited with patience. Starvation and deprivation began to soften the will of the people behind the strong walls. And once the city was weakened, then came forced entry, brutal executions, the plundering of the city and the taking of prisoners as slaves. Now imagine Jerusalem Post, not in 2013, but in 586 B.C. What would the headlines have read? We are told by the lamenter in the whole book of Lamentations, it reads like a headline. One of the headlines of 680, or 586 B.C. would have been, Jerusalem's resort to cannibalism. Government officials executed. Women raped by soldiers. Jerusalem surrenders. The temple pillaged and burned, and shackled survivors make their long, torturous march to Babylon. Now, if you're with me, imagine you being an eyewitness of this, this kind of hell on earth, because that's what it was. You still hear the sounds of screaming children ringing in your ears, the smell of death lingering in your nostrils, your soiled feet standing in the charred remains of the burned and crumbled walls that once protected you, that once were home to you. 
Imagine the stinging tears flowing down your gaunt cheeks as the weight of such a staggering blow to the nation you love and the city and people you know simply overwhelmed you. This was not a bad dream. This was a living, hellish nightmare. And the writer of Lamentations experienced it firsthand. One of the parallels might be, just a little bit, imagine you're a, nine, or a, a New York City firefighter during 9-11 terrorist attack. And imagine you as a firefighter in New York standing, you're one of the few survivors left to your colleagues, standing in ground zero with all the charred remains, still smoldering. And you're standing there trying to make sense of this tragedy. Your colleagues you have lost, the New Yorkers have lost, 3,000 fellow New Yorkers. Your aching heart pours out on pen, your lament. What do you do? Narrative does not work. Only the heart of a burdened artist in the beautiful lament of poetry emerges. When words fail you, you go to poetry, you go to music to express the depths of your soul. And this text is Hebrew poetry. It is arranged in acrostics to help remember and give a sound of anguish and mourning. Because Hebrew poetry is not just meant to be read it is meant to be heard at soul level. One of the things I discovered this week from someone who sent me this email, and I so appreciated this, in our congregation, he said, did you know that Leonard Bernstein wrote his first symphony? Now, Leonard Bernstein is Jewish and knows Hebrew. He wrote his first symphony, this very first, this remarkable composer and conductor in American history. And do you know the first symphony he wrote is based on this text of Lamentations? And as a Jewish writer and a Jewish believer in the Old Testament, he hears the anguish of lament in poetry, and he labels his first symphony Jeremiah. And I want you to listen just to a few seconds of what Leonard Bernstein heard as he looked at this text. Do you hear the intensity of grief and the foreboding resolve of anguish? This is where the lamentation writer is. I want you to listen to the sounds and feel the weight of a crushing blow to a crushed city and to a crushed people. Lamentations chapter 1 verse 1 opens with these words. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. She was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. The picture here is of a lonely widow. 
Jerusalem is now a ghost town. You feel the great loss of what once was, the loss of everything she loved. There is a sense of shame that she has gone from being a princess to a slave. Because Lamentations captures the anguish not only of a desperate sinful people, but a special place that has been smashed because of God's judgment. Lament expresses the weight of human sin. and the holiness of God. See, we are tempted in our cultural context that often dismisses sin as no big deal and defaces the holiness of God to sort of think sin is no big deal, individually and collectively in the world. But lamentations will not let us go there because sin is a hideous thing to a holy God. And you feel the burden not only of the judgment of the Babylonians, but the judgment of sin of a rebellious people Now notice how in Lamentations the city takes this focus. Lamentations 2 verse 15, if you're following along, you might turn there. Here, listen to this. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss. It's like they spit at you. They wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the entire earth? Ha, ha, ha. Now, why is that so devastating? Let's remember Jerusalem was one of the most beautiful cities of the world in the 6th century B.C. Not only its architecture was Solomon's beautiful temple, but the very Cenomanian limestones that were quarried have a golden hue to them. So when you came to Jerusalem, it's like Queen of Sheba came, it is brilliantly golden. And when the sun sets on the western edge, it shines like a golden city off the Cenomanium limestone in the beautiful temple. It was the, it was the perfection of beauty of the earth. Not only that, the Shekinah glory dwelt in the Holy of Holies. As you read Lamentations, you notice it is a lament over a destroyed place as well as a sinful people. It's dark here. <laughs> And the sense is that maybe God has given up on his people. His Shekinah glory has left. God has abandoned his people forever. That's the picture. So how dark is it? It is very dark. Very dark. But it goes from darkness to pitch black. Chapter 3, verses 17 to 18, the lamenter hits rock bottom. And you heard the words, my soul is bereft or absent or void of any shalom or peace. Nothing. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished, my hope from the Lord. Eugene Peterson paraphrases this beautifully. He says, I gave up on life altogether. I've forgotten what the good life is. I said to myself, this is it. I'm finished. God himself is a lost cause. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever been in such a dark, black hole of depression and discouragement that you have forgotten happiness and God and hope feels like a lost cause? I'm quite confident many of you have. Some of you may be there right now. I've been there. And it happened during my teenage years. It was actually 
The summer after I graduated, I found myself in this dark place. Some, for some reason, the weight of losing my father when I was young, the inferiority feelings that brings, the difficulties and missed opportunities that come with a single-parent home, recognizing how my own heart was wretched and broken, and the world as I began to see it as an adult, I knew what a mess it was. All this came together in my heart is the perfect storm. It was a black hole summer. God seemed silent and distant. And I find my own experience resonating with hitting rock bottom. If you were a teenager here this morning or work with teenagers particularly, I know from my own experience the turbulent and confusing time of life this can be. For me, it was one of the darkest times of my life. And what bothered me most was I was a Christian. I somehow thought I wasn't supposed to experience this. And it added to my heartache. I presume Christians shouldn't feel despairing. I, it didn't make sense to me. And what I needed most was a fresh dose of hope. And I found it. Or should I say it found me? One of the things in my own experience in this dark hole of depression and discouragement when everything goes black in your life was the book of Lamentations. Not only did I find a resonance of my own heart of echoing my hurt and my heartache and life didn't make sense to me, but I found the rays of hope that transformed darkness to light. And I discovered as a teenager an important truth I've held on to. And that is, lament is never the last word. Hope is. What we have here in 21 through 26, I'd like to describe for us as a fresh recipe of hope with three ingredients. What you see here is the, the lamenter at the rock bottom finds new hope. He looks back. He looks up and he looks ahead. He looks back, he looks up, and he looks ahead. First he looks back. Notice in verse 21. The bright light of hope penetrates the black hole of despair. He says, this I call. Literally the Hebrew text says, this I remember. I look back, I call to mind, and I have hope. And here we see the importance for all of our lives, each one of us, to look back and to remember God's past faithfulness to us. The lamenter is looking beyond the rubble around him and the destruction and despair and brokenness of his life. And he's remembering God has been faithful to his people in the past in Egypt to protect them, to provide for them. God has been faithful. And while we don't live in the past, right, we dare not forget it. Because present darkness, if you're in a hard time in your life, present dark circumstances often blind us to God's faithfulness in the past. And if you're in a particularly discouraging time in your life right now, take the time to remember God's faithfulness to you in the past. Marriage researchers are finding an interesting thing that I've run across. Marriages go through hard times. If you're married, or we'll get married someday, it's not an easy road. And what marriage researchers have found is that marriages that thrive, that have an inner glow through difficult seasons of life, is they not only make memories, they remember their memories. I was reminded of this recently when 
My bride Liz brought out several old albums from our family vacations with our kids. First of all, it made me feel old. You know, gosh, what happened to me? But we found ourselves remembering the joyful times together. And I have to tell you, there was just a more inner glow that I felt toward Liz as well as our family. Just, man, what a wonderful time we've had together, sweetie. I often forget that. See, we talk a lot in church about the danger of faithlessness. And that is a danger for all of us. We seldom talk about the danger of forgetfulness. Fresh recipe of hope comes first ingredient to look back at God's faithfulness. Second ingredient is to look up. Notice verses 22 through 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, the lamenter says. His mercies never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. What the lamenter is saying in this dark book is when we look up, we get our eyes on God and on his unchanging character. He is the eternal God. He's not only faithful in the past, he is faithful in your present this very morning. And what stands out to us from a poetic standpoint is this Hebrew word boker, morning. It jumps out as awkward, as unusual. Because this idea of mourning is that God's faithfulness and hope is available to you as sure as the sunrise. That's the picture. As sure as the sunrise is coming up in the morning, God's hope is available to you today wherever you're facing. If you will look up. And notice that verse 22 is sandwiched by two words. The steadfast love of the Lord and his mercies. That's how the original Hebrew text frames it. The steadfast love is important. This rich Hebrew word describes God's loyal love to his covenant people. It's a love that never fails. It's a love that keeps its promises. It's the love that Rabbi Paul, Apostle Paul, highlights in 1 Corinthians 13 in that love chapter. Love what? Never fails. Yes. No matter what you're facing. You know, since the 2008 financial crisis, we've had sort of this conversation globally about being too big to fail. It's become part of our conversation. Institutions are too big to fail. And there's a lot of argument if you're an economist about that. But what I love about God is he is not too big to fail. He's not only not too big to fail, he's too good to fail. He cannot fail. And this is where the lamenter who is at rock bottom begins to find new traction and new elevation. And notice verse 22, the word mercies. This is a very rich Hebrew word. It has the picture not only of God's promises, but his tender love. It's a picture, a familial picture of a mother for a child. It's God's tender love for him. And I've discovered this. I I lost my mom a few years ago, and I discovered it after I lost her most. That a mom loves you like nobody else. There is a unique love that is attached and given to someone you birth or adopt as a mom, right? Right? Moms, you know that. I mean, I was a bratty kid. That's how preachers become, you know, they become preachers because they're bratty kids. There's a lot of things I did wrong, but she always loved me. I always knew that tender look. And the lamenter looks up to God this morning. You're my heavenly father, my heavenly mother. You're my heavenly parent. And you embrace me with your tender love. I'm in your love. No matter what the day brings, 
No matter what I'm feeling, no matter the difficulty. So the lamenter says, look back, yeah, but now look up. Look who God is. And live fully in your presence. God is faithful. He's there. He's too big to fail. And notice verse 24. Do you see this? What we understand that hope is not just looking back and looking up. It is looking at a person. Hope is found in a person. He says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I'm going to have hope. Notice the text, in him. But notice the third ingredient. Look back, look up, but look ahead. Verses 25 to 26 have a future nuance, a focus in the grammar. And what you notice is that it says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, notice. To the soul who seeks him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Do you notice the repetition of the word wait? The word hope in the original language and wait are very closely tied together. Waiting and hoping. Hmm. What is he saying? I mean, I hate waiting. Been around Christ community, you know I always get carnal as a kite at a red light or a website that takes forever to come up, right? I had a, a chuckle reading the Wall Street Journal this week. There was a whole article on about baseball. It's a bummer because you have only 17 minutes of action. I'm like, I love baseball. There's no clock. But we have this idea of waiting is bad. Why the waiting emphasis here? What does waiting mean? Waiting is not just sitting for action to take place. It's eager expectation. It's like waiting for a loved one at the airport. You ever been like that? You just haven't seen it. Maybe it's a girlfriend, boyfriend, a grandfather, a husband that's been gone or a spouse. You just can't wait to give them a hug. You know, the plane never comes. You know they're coming, but you just just wait. It's like, come on. Or... Kids, you know, waiting for that birthday party, right? <laughs> or Christmas Eve, the presents, you know? You know what's coming, but you can hardly sleep. This is not wishful thinking. This is looking ahead with confident expectation. That's what hope is. So what is the lamenter expecting? Notice the text, the salvation of the Lord. When we hear the word salvation, if we've been in church a while or background, sometimes we think about what it means to come to know Christ as our personal Lord and Savior because of what Christ has done on the cross, the glory of the gospel. And certainly, verse 26 highlights this. It points to Christ the Savior. His fingerprints are all over here. But this word salvation is not just tied to Jesus' first coming, but also to his second coming when he will usher in the restoration of all things and make all things new in the new heavens and new earth. See, the lamenter is looking forward to that day when all things will be made new. The climax of this text and the end of Lamentations as you read it, you discover that hope is found in a person, God himself. And at the end of the day, what Lamentations teaches us is we don't find hope. Hope finds us. The lamenter looks back. He looks up. He looks ahead. And you'll notice in the text the repetition of this word good. 
You see it? It's good. It's good. Everything has been bad to this point. And the word good takes us back to Genesis 1. In original creation, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. <laughs> Remember, this is poetry. And it points us back to the garden where there was no lament and to the new heavens and earth where there'll be no lament anymore. It is conspicuously evident in the poetry. He's looking down the time horizon when all things will be made new. I like the gospel preacher of old. Must have been a southerner. Nothing against southerners, but he was teaching his Good Friday sermon. Looking forward to Easter morning, and he kept saying, it's Friday, but Sunday's a-coming. This is where the lamenter is. We live between Jesus' first and second coming, and we look through the lens of the empty tomb with hope for this time between. Lamentations teaches us hopeful realism. That life in this fallen world, in the already not yet, is a mixed bag in our hearts, in our world, in our relationships. It will always be a mixed bag until the new heavens and new earth. You and I, as followers of Jesus, and if you're considering becoming a follower of Jesus this morning, I want you to understand that we will experience joy and sadness and despair and delight. C.S. Lewis, after losing his wife Joy to cancer, wrote a lament it's called The Grief Observed. And Lewis put it this way, the pain now is part of the happiness later. That's the deal. So let me just share in closing three reminders I'd like you to just tuck into your heart wherever you are this morning. First of all, in refreshing hope, as you look back, look up and look ahead, keep your eyes on Jesus and not on your circumstances. Yes, sometimes they're brutal. New Testament writer Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2, and you might read that this week, to fix our eyes on Jesus. Hope is found in a person, the person who's found us, in the glorious good news of the gospel. But secondly, let your lamenting stir greater longing. What we have in this poetry is a paradox. While lament seems undesirable, it stirs greater desire. Do you see it? Lament leads to a greater longing. The psalmist in Psalm 42 has this picture. He says, why are you downcast, O my soul? He says, why are you? Why are you so depressed? Keeps going through it, 42 and 43. And the same place, he says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. It pants like a deer. Go, huh? Lament leads to greater longing. The bright light of hope emerges in his downcast heart in yours and mine. When you find yourself in a dark valley, you may be there this morning. Let your honest lament lead you to the one who can quench your thirsty soul and refresh you with the living waters of resurrection hope. The lamentation author knew that embedded in lament was a paradox where hope emerged, where deeper longing for Christ, for his world, and for the future new heavens, new earth, just built in his heart like a growing song. Third, let your lamenting lead to faithful serving. The tendency when we go through a hard time, when we have lament, when we're honest with God of our frustrations and struggles, is we become self-absorbed. 
right? We find ourselves in a valley of discouragement, but our lament is not meant to be navel-gazing. It's meant to get us to roll up our sleeves and get to work in our world. The book of Lamentations not only ends with the echo of God's hopefulness, but it says, get back to work. There is a sense that the lamenter is saying, oh, there's still work to be done in the midst of the rubble of brokenness. And as we lament the brokenness of our life, the rubble of our city, the rubble of relationships, the rubble of our nation, let's get to work. That's where lamentation takes us. And the primary work God has for you and me to do is what you are already doing. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Your vocation. What you and I are called to do each day throughout the week is a faithful presence in your place of work. So be faithful in your vocational stewardship. One of the most profound responses of faithfulness to lament in the brokenness and suffering and poverty and injustice of our world is to be faithful where God has planted you in your work. Or at school, or at home. Second, be committed to your local church. Through our faithful presence as a multi-site congregation in our city, we are salt and light in the world. Jesus' salt and light conversation is a collective one, not just an individual. And collectively, we can make a difference as a local church with other local churches around the world. And look for ways to build hope and bring hope to our world. Compassion International is a great example as our family sponsored a child for many, many years. And yes, we lament the poverty and brokenness, but we are rolling up our sleeves and doing our part in making a difference. We live in troubled times, very troubled times, nationally and globally, no question. And it's easy for us to be discouraged about the injustice and moral, spiritual decline of our nation. Our heartfelt lament at the brokenness of our world can just freeze us. But we need to climb to new elevations and find hope. Lamentations looks with great anticipation to the end of the story. When we look in Revelation, there will be a day when there will be no more crying or pain or suffering, and death will be no more. We realize once and for all that it is not we who have found hope, but it is hope that has found us. Let's pray. Father, we do live in a broken world. We have broken lives. All of us, in one sense, are a deep mess. Father, I pray that you would bring gospel hope and encouragement to every heart this morning. May we look back at your faithfulness in our life. May we look up at you and look ahead that one day the curtain will close and life will be as you designed it to be. And we will experience the extraordinary reality of the new heavens and new earth. May our eyes be fixed on Jesus the one who makes that possible.